Section two of Sunbeams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sunbeams by George W. Peck. Admiral, is my hat on straight? Admiral Dewey, in relinquishing the command of the Asiatic Squadron, and in fact the whole navy of his country, and taking command of a smack, or letting a smack take command of him, to speak more truthfully, comes down from the hero to the common everyday man. From this out he cannot shout orders through a megaphone and see those orders executed by bustling, hustling crews, but he has got to say, Will you please do so and so? No more can he have a list of things prepared and tell a quartermaster to go and buy them and pay for them out of the war chest. He has got to go and see the woman buy them, and he has got to draw his weasel skin like any other man and watch that he gets the right change back. A week ago he was owned by the nation, body and soul, and any man would have laid down his life for the hero. Today he is owned and controlled and receives his orders from a sweet little woman not bigger than a pint of cider, and he likes it better. Three weeks ago, in New York, he rode through the streets, and all the world looked on with admiration, and looked upon him with awe. Yesterday he went shopping with the dear little woman, carried bundles of things he couldn't tell the names of, and while his owner was looking at things that he was not allowed to see until she wore them at her wedding, in the department of the store that men are not allowed to enter, unless blindfolded. He sat upon a revolving stool, with sweet, laughing girls behind the counters, all around him commenting on what the little old man with the twinkling eyes was waiting for. He walked up and down the store like a floor-walker, instead of like an admiral walking the quarter-deck of the victorious Olympia. And when the little woman came out of the sanctum of fluffy underwear, with a union suit of ribbed silk under her arm, he said, let me carry it, dear. And when it was handed him, he took hold of it by the ankle, with his thumb and finger, just like a man, and the legs and body spread out all over the floor. Everybody blushed, and she said, Oh, how awkward all you men are! Something even the German Admiral Diedrich would not have dared to say to him without danger of being blown out of the water. The change has come to the Admiral and now he will cease to study the geography of the Philippine archipelago, and will begin the study of names of articles of women's wearing apparel. He can no longer touch a button and cause a ship to go to the right or to the left, to port or to starboard, but he will have to get acquainted with the location of hooks and eyes, and he will find that the dressmakers put them on in the most unexpected places. When he was on earth before, Hooks and eyes came in flocks, either up and down in front, or down and up in the back. But now they are away over on the shoulder, or underneath the arms, and it will take a rangefinder to locate them, and get them hooked upright, or unhooked, as the case may be. Instead of looking into the distance to see if the black smoke comes from a friendly ship or an enemy, he must look only for the little craft that smiles and shows the beautiful teeth, and asks if her hat is on straight, and he has got to decide that hat question at a glance, and not stop to survey the surroundings and figure it out with a slate and pencil. 
Dewey will find that responsibilities of housekeeping will multiply, and before he has discharged a kicking cook or an inebriated coachman, many times he will wish he was back on his ship. When the wedding comes, he will have more trouble than he ever dreamed of, for he is sure to step on the train and tear the lace with his old sea-legs unaccustomed to the land, and he will leave the ring in his other vest, and when they begin to throw rice and old shoes, he will use language, poor fellow. How mad he will be when he gets to Boston, or wherever he goes on his wedding trip, to find that the sailors and ushers and best men have painted his trunk white and put ribbons all over it, and he thought nobody would know he was on his wedding trip. And when all is over, and he brings the bride back to the new home, and that Japanese dog barks a welcome to him, and growls at the woman he has brought back to share his love with the dog, he must not be surprised if a number two shoe with a patent leather toe kicks that dog on the crupper bone and telescopes the animal up short, for women do not like dogs any too well with fleas on them. But our hero has got to get used to these things that he has been a stranger to so long, and he must act brave when burglars get into the house though he may be scared out of his boots. All Dewey has got to do is to be patient and let nature take its course. He must not be admiral too much at first, but be contented just to be first mate, and if he behaves well and learns his lessons of matrimony early, this Ohio girl will surely promote him to the lofty and sublime position of good husband, which is a tide in civil life equal to that of admiral in the navy, though the salary and perquisites are not so large, and he can't sail around alone so much without a consort. Gave the Prisoner Rope Some years ago a newspaper man was appointed chief of police in an inland city. He didn't know anything about the police business, but felt that he could arrest a small man who was very drunk, if occasion should demand, and as the salary was pretty good, he accepted the office. The first evening, as he sat in the little police office, talking with one of his assistants, a drunken prisoner was brought in, struggling and kicking and threatening to kill the whole police force, and when he was put in a cell, he said he would commit suicide before morning. The other policeman told the new chief that the prisoner would have to be watched all night or he would kill himself. They said he was a regular customer, being drunk every week or so, and that several times he had torn up the bedclothes and fixed for hanging himself, and once or twice had to be cut down after he had become almost insensible, and they had to give him whiskey to bring him to. They said some thought he played his suicide act on them just to get sympathy and whiskey, but that it had been the custom to have a man sit up and watch the prisoner to save his life, and to save the bedclothes. The new chief knew the drunken fellow as a loafer, and didn't believe he had sand enough to kill himself, and for a little while he thought of some plan that might cure the fellow of drinking, and of the especially bad habit of trying to kill himself. The chief went to a store and bought about eight feet of rope and a staple. He went down into the cell-room and asked the man if he was going to kill himself that night, and he said he was. Then the chief went in the cell drove the staple in the beam above, made a slip-noose in the rope, and fastened the other end to the staple. "'What are you doing, chief?' said the prisoner, 
as he sat on his bunk and watched the preparations. "'I'll tell you what I am doing,' said the editor-chief. "'You have destroyed sheets and blankets enough in this jail trying to commit suicide, and it must be trying on your nerves to fail so often. Sheets and blankets do not make a very good rope anyway. Now, under this police department, we are going to study to please our customers, and I am told you are one of our regulars.' I shall remove the sheets and blankets and provide you with a rope, with a noose in it, that I will warrant will choke the daylights out of you in a holy minute. All you have got to do is to get on the chair, put your head in the noose, kick the chair out from under you, and there you are, ready to croak. See? Now, if one of these policemen disturbs you, or cuts you down and spoils that rope, I will discharge him. I will now put out the lights and leave you here. If you want a minister, say so. This cell will not be open till tomorrow morning, and nobody will come within hearing distance of you, but tomorrow morning I will have a twelve-shilling coffin here and a man to plant you. Who do you want to have your valuables? Now good night, and may you have a pleasant evening. And the chief went out of the cell, leaving a very sober drunkard sitting on his bunk thinking and looking at the noose. The next morning the chief went downstairs and yelled back to bring that coffin down in front of cell three, when a voice came from the cell saying, Chief, I ain't dead. Never mind the coffin. The chief looked into the cell, which was beginning to be light a little, saw a white face at the grated door, and the noose still unused. Why didn't you hang yourself as you promised? You could be arrested for that. Ah, you were too dumbed kind said the prisoner. The only thing I was afraid of was that if I went to sleep, that blamed noose would get over my head without any help. Chief, I didn't sleep a wink all night, and I have made a fool of myself for ten years, and I will never drink another drop as long as I live. The man quit drinking, and is a successful businessman today. So give him rope. THE TRUST AND THE DRUMMER the organization of trusts has thrown thousands of traveling men out of employment. When a trust is formed, it calls in the traveling men and discharges them, and notifies the trade that goods are being sold at such a price, and if they want any, they better get in the order mighty quick and send the cash. Traveling men who have spent the greater part of their business lives building up trade for a concern and who, a few years ago, were looking forward to being partners in the business, go to their old employers and ask to be retained, and the old employer is sorry, but his hands are tied, as the business is now owned by Eastern or European Capital, with headquarters in New Jersey, and he is mighty lucky if they let him stay, to say nothing of his old boys that were so jolly and happy for years when they were building up the business. There is more grief today among the old traveling men that the people used to love to see strike a town than anywhere outside a tornado-stricken city. They are paralyzed to think that by a stroke of a pen in the hand of a man in the East that their livelihood and their whole future can be taken from them. The men who are left on the road are not happy at all, and do not act natural, as they fear the next letter they get from the house will contain an order to come home. The hotels all over the country that for a quarter of a century have lived by the aid of the old travelers who hardly had any other home than hotels are failing and look empty and forlorn. And for what is all this misery? 
it is that a few men with money to burn shall control every business in the country and make more money it is that promoters of trusts shall get rich and that foreign capital shall own the ground walked on the machine that works in the factory the transportation that moves the product and the soul of the man who used to sell it and the consumer who consumes it at a mighty high price there is a danger in this trust business that few appreciate it will simply ruin the country if persisted in and make paupers of nine men that the tenth man whom nobody knows may be too rich to live in this country and pay taxes when a trust magnet becomes so rich that he is found out by the assessor he begins to kick at his taxes and finally seeks some place where the assessor is a weakling or a knave and spends the balance of his life blowing in money for his own pleasure pulling wool over the eyes of half-witted assessors and letting people who are too honorable to dodge taxes look at him in his pride and glory and pay the taxes themselves there will come a time when the trust magnate who pauperizes his neighbors and the rich tax dodger who shirks his duty will find no place on the earth except monte carlo where he will be welcome and there he will have to gamble away the money he has taken from the poor in order to be recognized by the society that will congregate there but if the trusts are wiped out in a few years and legitimate competition established happiness will again be a condition and not a theory and the smile of the traveling man will be seen again and his hearty laugh heard throughout the land end of section two recording by melora